Some of you may recognize this. You probably can't see from way back there, but we've been encouraging you to read through the New Testament in a year. And I'm not going to ask how many are doing that, but I hope you all are. If you're not, good time to start. Uh, what I'm going to be trying to do throughout the summer is uh, my, each week's message will come from the chapters that we're reading. So, for example, this week we read John chapter 18 through the first chapter of Acts. Next week we'll go Acts 2 through 6. So just encourage you, if you didn't get one of these, I don't know if there's still some sitting out there or not, but if you would ask Casey or Mrs. Barnes, I bet we could get them for you. So having said that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you that we can look to your word with confidence. We can look to your word with hope. Father, we thank you and, and stand on the foundation of your unchanging word, your unchanging character. Father, that you are, you are true and you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I just pray as we look into your word this morning that uh, we, we glean from it what you would like us to hear and receive this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 21. And I want to bring us kind of up to speed a little bit chronologically here. This is after the resurrection, obviously. We're almost to the end of the chapter. And uh, it, it's a post-resurrection event that is going to be taking place. And it's interesting, as we read through the story in just a few moments, I, I want to remind us of something when, when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb that first day after the crucifixion. There's an interesting thing that, that the angel or Jesus or both spoke to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and the other women with her. He said, go and tell the disciples that I have risen from the dead. We probably remember that, right? Do you remember what they added? Tell them to go to Galilee and I will see them there. Well, the problem with that initial message was when Mary and the ladies went back to the disciples and, and walked into the room where they were hiding, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him at all. But then Jesus had to present himself to them, show himself to them a couple of times. And then eventually, it looks like in chapter 21 that somewhere in the time frame from uh, when they left Jerusalem, after Jesus had saw them and showed himself to many people, they, we don't know the length of time that elapsed. We do know it was, it was obviously before the ascension, so we know it wasn't, wasn't more than 50 days after the crucifixion. But we don't know exactly how long. But in chapter 21 of John, they are at, in Galilee, and they're actually at the Sea of Galilee. Or in, in some translations, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. And... Sometimes people look at that and say, what's with the contradictions? What are the names different? It's just the same name, only it's the Roman name. They called it the Sea of Tiberias instead of the Sea of Galilee. So I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in John chapter 21 at verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter, and Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, 
and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him and said, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. The disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, I love it when John refers to himself that way. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. He says, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish were already placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They're at the Sea of Tiberias. So the disciples somewhere in there have returned to Galilee as they were originally told to do. As I said, we don't know how long the time frame was. But it's interesting that we can only conjecture what was motivating Peter at this time. It's kind of interesting because if you read different commentaries, you know, some of them say, well, Peter had given up on, on waiting for the Lord and he was frustrated and he was going to go fishing because that's what he did. He had done that to make a living. Others would say, well, no, just being very practical. Probably needed to eat, needed some money. The reality is we don't know why, but we do know Peter was a fisherman, as many of them were, and they were waiting for Jesus, and we don't know how many days they'd been waiting. So finally he says, I'm going fishing. How many of you do that when you're frustrated? I'm going fishing. And it's interesting Peter, as we saw in the development of Peter, uh, right up till the denial of Christ, had, had really been a natural leader. And natural leaders need to be careful where they lead. Because look what happens. The other disciples, we're going too. We're all going fishing. And it looks like they all pile in a boat. The title of my message this morning is kind of two titles. It's uh, Push Against the Rock or When the Net is Empty. So Peter's motivation is uncertain, but the fact is they were fishing. And remember, these are professional fishermen. This is what they've been doing their whole life. And they've been out there all night long fishing. And then they hear this voice from shore. Children, you haven't caught anything yet, have you? Put yourself in their place. We might try to over-spiritualize them, but I I can guess some of the things they were thinking. Who's the wise guy? on the beach, been fishing all night, I have no time for this. And then this voice says, 
take your nets that are in the water on the left side of the boat, bring them out of the water, get them up, and then cast them over on the right side of the boat, and you're going to get a bunch of fish. What would you have done? First of all, I don't have any idea who this guy is on the shore rubbing it in. And how wide's the boat? Ten feet, maybe. There's going to be fish there, and there's nothing here. It's interesting to me that we don't understand what their motivation was, but they chose to obey. They chose to obey. They took the nets in. If I'm Peter, and it's probably a good thing I'm not, I'd have said, that's stupid. We're not going to do that. We're wore out. If we're going to do anything, we're going to come in and try to find something to eat for breakfast. But they did it anyway. And when they did, we see in verse uh, 6, they caught so many fish, they couldn't even pull the nets in. A little sidebar caught my attention is, you know, here they are fishing and they can't pull them into the water, you know, pull them through the water into the boat. But when they get on shore, Peter, he goes over and grabs the net and pulls it onto the shore all by himself. I think he was motivated. So they've got all these fish and they go to shore. And undoubtedly, they were more than a little shocked. And that's when, when John, the disciple that Jesus loved, says, it's the Lord. Now, what made the, all of a sudden made them think, or how did he know that it was the Lord? Did the fog lift? I don't know. I, I doubt that was it. But as soon as he said it was the Lord, look at how Peter responded. He put on his outer garment and jumped in and headed to shore. And I'm wondering personally, and it doesn't tell us this, but I can't help but think he probably wasn't having a flashback or two. Remember when Jesus first called Peter and some of the other disciples? They were on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. They had fished all night. Guess what they caught that time? Nothing. Maybe he wasn't a professional. They'd caught nothing. And Jesus, there was this huge throng of people on the hillside by the lake, and he got into one of their boats. And he said, push out a little ways, and then he shared his teaching. And then when he was through sharing, he told them, go on out and throw in your nets. And if you remember the story, they caught so many fish that the nets were beginning to tear and break, and they had to bring a second boat over, and they got all the fish in both boats. And the Bible says there were so many fish, the boats began to sink. And that's when they were called, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And here they are now, almost at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry and his earthly time with them, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, catching fish again. I can only imagine in my mind all of the thoughts that could have been going through Peter's head of the things that had transpired in those three years. And especially those things that had transpired in the few months, few days, really, weeks preceding since the crucifixion. It's interesting, too, interesting to me anyway, that in here there's a phrase in my my Bible that talks about the charcoal fire and some fish on it. Well, that word, that phrase in the, the Greek for the charcoal fire is only used two places in the New Testament. It's here where Peter's being invited to have breakfast 
And the other place it's used is when Peter was standing around the charcoal fire when the young girl said, hey, aren't you with them? And he denied Christ. I think he was probably having all kinds of things going on in his mind as he was experiencing this free breakfast, this miracle that was being occurred, that was occurring. And I think, too, there's probably some significance at least to the fact that they caught so many fish the first time the nets were breaking. They caught so many fish this time that they couldn't even haul them in. And then he says, you're going to, from now on, fish for men. You're going to be a fisher's of men. And that was obviously fulfilled. What I want to do is take a look at <clears throat> three different things. And you could pick out different things that you would like to point at that you could really glean from in this story. But I'm going to look at three lessons that I think we can learn from this one. And the first one is simply this. It's important to obey Jesus. It's important to obey Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk quite a bit about obedience when we look through this story. But I want to just clarify something, you know, in, in not clarify, reiterate something in the lieu of some of the teaching in the last few weeks about obedience. We need to understand obedience is a big deal to the Lord. It's a big deal. But the thing that's different is it's not like we're being obedient to a taskmaster who is threatening to punish us if we disobey. It's not like our obedience comes out of a motivation because we want the, the, the blessings of that obedience. Our heart's wrong. It's an obedience that comes out of love for our Heavenly Father. Every time we see a command, it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate how much we love Jesus. That should be our motivation. The blessings are a perk. They're an extra benefit. But it's a love response. And when we look at obedience, we need to remind ourselves of that. We can get in our head that old religious ogre mentality that that God is somehow waiting for you to mess up so he can club you or punish you, or, or make you sick, or make your car break down, or whatever. He's not that kind of God. But obedience. He loved us. We love him in return. And obedience is one of the ways, a primary way, that we demonstrate that love. I think when we look at this, it's important to obey Jesus. I think in both cases, for Peter and the other fishermen, I think it would have been hard to obey. I think it would have been hard to obey somebody telling me how to fish, especially if I knew he was a carpenter. And you're going to tell me how to fish. And I've been out fishing all night the first time and caught nothing. I've been out fishing all night the second time and caught nothing. And you're telling me to do these silly things. I think they probably, <clears throat> after the fact, realized it worked out pretty good the first time. I'm glad we listened again. We caught these fish. I think it's important that we understand and, and Put ourselves in our own situations. Think about your, your life situations. Here we are. These guys are fishing. They're professionals. They've done this for a living. They, they know the lake. They know the Sea of Galilee. They've been fishing on the Sea of Galilee their whole lives. They know their boat. They know their equipment. They know what they're doing. And they've caught nothing. And this guy from shore says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Well, they did it, and they caught fish, lots and lots of fish. But I think for all of us, there's similar things in our life where we're facing a situation, a circumstance, 
a problem of some sort. And we do everything we know to do. We, take all, we apply all our training, all our wisdom, all our past experiences. We take all of those things. We even do the things that we, you know, I've been in this situation before and it's worked every other time. So we take and go through all those things and what do we do when it still doesn't work? And that's kind of where the fishermen were. And I think often in our lives, that's where we get. We're really needing to hear the Lord and just do what he says. And in the case of the fishermen, it seemed ridiculous. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had the Lord ask you to do something that seemed really stupid or really silly or really foolish. Or you might even try to negotiate with him and see if you can't do it just a little different way so you won't look so foolish. We need to just simply obey. God's ways are not our ways, and he's a lot smarter than we are. So what was going on here? If, if Jesus wanted to do a miracle and provide them fish, guess what? He could have told the fish to swim around the other side of the boat. Matter of fact, he could have said to the fish, I want you to jump in the boat. That would have really impressed him. It wasn't about the fish. It wasn't about the fish at all. It was about their obedience. He was still teaching them. Still teaching them. And when they obeyed, there was tremendous blessing. And Peter, he's learned a lot of lessons in the last 60 days leading up to this. But it's a lesson I think we can all learn. That, that we need to ask and then obey. And one of the problems that I have with obeying is simply this. It has to take humility or rebellion, however you like it, as it gets in the way. But, you know, for us to obey anybody, we have to humble ourselves, don't we? If your boss tells you to do something and you think it's a crazy idea, but yeah, I'm just going to humble myself and I'm going to submit and do it anyway. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about a lot of the things we worry about with other people when God is asking us to do something because he's a God who loves us. And whatever he's doing is for our benefit. And we just need to respond out of love for him and obey. No matter what he asks, one of the things I think the Lord desires in all of us is a very teachable spirit. A lot of times we aren't that way. Our pride gets in the way. Our stubbornness gets in our way. We even blame it on being Sweden, Norwegian, or German, or something else. Or we list, well, that's just the way us Nelsons are. Get used to it. But no, we, we need to humble ourselves and simply obey. Have a teachable spirit. Second lesson, very closely related to the first one. We often meet God when we come to the end of ourselves. You ever wonder why we've got to find ourselves at the very, 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 very bottom before we totally surrender. Meeting him where everything else has failed. Everything else has failed. We're finally in a place where we cry out to him. As I said earlier, these, these fishermen, they were doing what they do. Experts in their day. Familiar waters. Fished all night. Caught nothing. And the Lord shows up, tells them to do something simple, something that would seem really foolish, and they did it, humbling themselves. 
when we face those same kinds of issues in our life, we will oftentimes have to get to that place where we will humble ourselves and acknowledge, you know what? There is nothing I can do about the situation I'm in. Nothing. I've tried everything. I've tried to change it. I've tried to fix it. Fix it. I've asked every expert I know. I've asked all the people I shouldn't have asked what I should do. I've tried everything. And we just all of a sudden realize there's one person we haven't tried, and he's got all the answers. We need to go to the Lord. And Peter's a, just such a good example of, of, of a prideful guy, very self-confident guy. Um, you know, we could go through the litany of the things Peter did from the time he got called to be a disciple until today. I mean, he was, he was bold. He was courageous. Then he denied Christ, and then he hid in a room with a bunch of other disciples. But he became a man who was humbled. I hesitate to use the word broken, but he was broken. His pride was broken. He humbled himself. And this was a process for God to lead him into the great things that God then uses him for as one of his disciples to spread the gospel around the world. When God calls us, there will always be a preparation. When we run into those mountains or those deep, dark valleys, that's when we need to turn to him. Just surrender ourselves. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it. Stop relying on our own strengths, our own abilities. You know, there's some scriptures that should pop to our mind. God gives grace to the who? To the humble. His grace is always sufficient. You know, when I'm weak, he's strong. But oh, we can be so stubborn and take so long to get to that place. Third lesson. First one, we need to obey God. Second one, he'll meet, meet with us, and usually it's when we're the end of ourselves. And the third one is simply, the answer is oftentimes so much closer than we think it is. You ever had that happen? You're, you're, you're struggling with something, you're trying to figure something out, and all of a sudden when the answer comes, you kind of do the old slap the forehead and think, I can't believe I didn't think of that or didn't do that. Here they were trying to fish all night, and guess where the answer was? It was just on the other side of the boat. And Jesus told them where to throw the net, and they caught the fish. They were there. Another way of looking at it is the answer that they needed was as close as their willingness to obey the one that was telling them what to do. Oftentimes, in my own life, that's how close the answer has been. Close enough that if I would be just willing to obey and do what I know the Lord is wanting me to do, it's there. Instead, oftentimes, I resist, ignore, or negotiate, and miss it. Sometimes it seems too easy. Sometimes it's not spiritual enough. There's a great story in the Old Testament. Uh, It's in 2 Kings. Um, We're not going to turn there, but it's in chapter 5 if you want to reference it later. It's a story about a a Syrian general who was a general, a military leader, a mighty man of valor, a warrior for the king of Aram. His name was Naaman. You might already be familiar with the name, and then you know the story. He was this mighty man, this mighty warrior, valiant warrior. And he had one issue. He was also a leper. 
And it tells us in the story that his leprosy was starting to spread. And in his own household, one of the young slave girls that they'd brought back from Israel in one of their conquests, the slave girl was Naaman's wife's servant. And the slave girl, this little slave girl says, oh, if only my master, meaning Naaman, was with the prophet, Israel's prophet. If only he would see the prophet Elisha. If Elisha was here, he would heal him of his leprosy. Well, to cut through the story, Naaman eventually goes to Elisha's house with all kinds of wealth. You know, he'd already been to the king, and the king freaked out and says, what am I, God? And he sent him to Elijah. And he's got all this money and all these clothes and all these things. And he comes to Elijah and probably expecting a pretty supernatural event. And he gets there and Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. Elisha doesn't even, here's this mighty warrior, this Syrian general, and he's got leprosy and he came to be, receive healing and Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends his servant out. And his servant goes out and has the message. He has the answer. And the servant says, you're to go to the river Jordan and dip yourselves in the, yourself in the river seven times. And when you do that, your leprosy will be gone and your skin will be that of a young man. Wow, how easy is that? Well, let me read a couple of verses in 2 Kings, and here's Naaman's response. He was furious. He says this, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands all over the place and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpur, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of the nation of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in rage. Think about that. And sometimes we're like that. If we would just be obedient to what the Lord's leading us to do, no matter how simple, no matter how foolish it might be, Naaman was a big shot. He went to the big shot prophet, only he wouldn't even come out and see him. Then he talks about the rivers in Syria and says, our rivers have got to be better than their rivers. There's nothing good in Israel. We're, we're the ones in charge. And he won't do anything. And finally, one of his underlings says to him, you know, if he'd asked you, well, let me read it. He says, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So often we're like that. We have this, this idea of what something's supposed to be like. Maybe it's even our calling, the ministry that we feel like the Lord's calling us to. We have these ideas, these concepts, these preconceived notions. And the opportunities that are presented to us that are very close and very simple, we just ignore because we want bigger and better. Or what we're asked to do seems silly and foolish. Well, fortunately... Naaman responded this way. It says he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored 
and became clean like that of a young boy? The answer was closer than he thought. It was humbling. Didn't make sense to him at the time, but he did it anyway. And this is the way it often is with us. The answer is right there. We need to just respond in obedience and be faithful and trust God. You know, as I started out, I want to reiterate that, you know, we have a loving God. And we have a loving God that we can trust. We can believe in him, we can have confidence in him, and we can trust him. Our obedience is not out of fear of being punished. Our obedience isn't to receive the award or reward. Our obedience is a response of love. We've got to remember that he calls us his beloved children. He sent his son to die for us. Because he first loved us, we love him. We need to do what he wants us to do, what he asks us to do. There's a story that's been used with many, many variations, so I have no idea who actually originally wrote this story. You can see lots of different variations of it, but I want to just share the story with you, and some of you maybe read this before. Kind of the, in conclusion, it talks about this story of a weak, kind of sickly man who lived in a log cabin out in the woods beside a pond. He couldn't afford to go to a doctor if there would have been one close. He was getting weaker and weaker. And one night, he had a vision from the Lord. And this vision was just as clear as could be. And in this vision, the Lord spoke to him and said, there's that big rock, boulder, outside your cabin. I want you to go out to that boulder and push against it every day until I tell you to stop. I want you to push against it every day until I tell you to stop. Well, the next morning he woke up and the vision was so real and it was so clear to him. He was so motivated. He could hardly wait to get out into that boulder and start pushing on that boulder. And he went out and he pushed until he was tired. He rested. He pushed some more. Got tired and rested. He pushed some more and went to bed that night. And he got up the next day and he did this day after day. Week after week, month after month, for eight months, pushing on that boulder. And then he started to think about what he was doing. And he started to feel, he really feel depressed, frustrated. So he went and got a, a tape measure, and he measured from his front porch to the boulder. And then he went out and pushed all day long again. And he came back and measured again. And he did that for two weeks. And every time he'd measure, he'd find the same thing. He hadn't moved that boulder one fraction of an inch. And he realized quite clearly that he'd been pushing for almost eight months now. And in the whole entire eight months, he hadn't pushed that boulder and hadn't moved that boulder a fraction of an inch. He was so frustrated, disappointed. He went up on the rocking chair on his deck and sat and cried. And then he realized Jesus was sitting in the rocking chair next to him. And Jesus says to him, 
What's wrong? How come you're crying? How come you're so sad? And he said, Lord, you gave me that vision eight months ago. And it was so real and so vivid and it gave me such hope. And now I'm so disappointed because it hasn't worked. I haven't moved that boulder a fraction of an inch using all my energy every day for eight long months. And Jesus just looks at him and smiles and says, Son, I didn't tell you to move the boulder. I just told you to go push against it. And he says, come with me. I want you to walk with me down to the pond. I want to show you something. So out of obedience, this man who was weak and sickly and had been pushing on a rock for eight months and not moving it anywhere, followed Jesus down to the pond. And the water was as smooth as glass and it was like a mirror. And he says, look at yourself in the pond. And he looked at the, himself in the pond and he couldn't believe what he saw. There was no longer a weak, sickly man. There stood a man strong and well-muscled, looked healthy and hearty. And he started to think to himself, he says, man, I have been sleeping at night. I haven't been coughing every night. I, how could I have been so blind to not see what had been transpiring in my body as I was doing what the Lord had told me to do? The answer wasn't what he expected. The request that the Lord had given, that the request that he had had and that the Lord gave him in an answer wasn't what he expected. But he was healthy. The rock hadn't moved. He had done what he was told to do, but he didn't understand what he was doing. When we face obstacles in our lives, and we will all the time, we need to, first of all, remember we have someone we can call on who knows all the answers. Jesus. And when he tells us what to do, we need to obey because it's always for our good, always for our good, even when we don't see it. I tried to picture myself pushing on a rock for eight months. I'd have never made it eight months. We need to know that we need to get to the end of ourselves sometimes and realize we can't deal with it. We can't do it. We can't fix it. We can't even achieve it. Even with all the gifts and talents that God has given us, we can't do it in our own strength. And even if we could, it would not bring glory to God. And that's really what we live to do. And then we need to realize oftentimes the answer is right there. We just need to see it. God's plan was not for this man to move the rock. God's plan had nothing to do with filling the net full of fish. It wasn't about the rock. It wasn't about the fish. Those things in our life that we're facing all the time, it's not about the issue. It's not about the circumstance. They're the rock. They're the empty net in our lives. God is doing something in our life with those rocks and empty nets. He's doing a work that involves us becoming more like Christ, pushing against the rock in faith, in hope, in confidence, in trust. There are so many things in our natural lives that we won't know and we won't understand, we won't be able to figure out, but God knows. 
and of our pushing against the rock is simply standing on trust and believing in him, that's pushing against the rock. We need to trust him. We need to listen. Do what he says and just trust him. When we push against that rock, that's when we become strong. And what I'm talking about there is that's what builds our faith. That's what builds our trust. That's what builds our confidence, our spiritual strength, not relying on ourselves and our own muscles or brains when we're pushing against the rock, but when we push against the rock, we become strong. It doesn't matter whether the rock moves or not. There will be some issues in our lives that the issue never changes. It never gets resolved, or at least we don't see it getting resolved. But we change. We change. And when we obey, there is always a way open. It's like in a door because it's an act of love. The intimacy with the Lord increases. And when we obey, it becomes like a doorway into greater fellowship with the Lord. And I think that's what we all want. I know that's what he wants. So I think as you read through stories like this, there are so many things that we could apply to our lives if we just stop, even in our reading. Read Casey's blog, Pastor Casey's blog online. That will give you some things to think about in each week or each day. But as we read, study, just stop. Pray. Ask the Lord. Show me. Reveal to me what it is you want for me to learn in this section of Scripture that I'm reading. It really will build our faith, build our trust, build our confidence in the Lord so when those rocks come or the net's empty, we have something to stand on. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I know even as I share this message this morning, there are many of us here that are facing big rocks. There's big issues, circumstances. And even what I share can sound simplistic. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak to our hearts. God, that you would just continue to reveal to each one of us here how much we are loved by you. God, how faithful you are to us. That we can trust you no matter what. That we'll not get our eyes on the rock. We won't focus on the empty net but we'll keep our eyes on you. A loving Heavenly Father who desires to bless us as your children. Lord, I pray as we go through today and tomorrow, Lord, we we are reminded of the days that we're celebrating even as we celebrate Memorial Day. Lord, this simple cross up here with the little poppies on it to remind us isn't much, but Many, many men and women have given their lives for the freedoms that we have and take so for granted. Lord, we thank you for each one that sacrificed. We pray for families that have lost loved ones. We thank you for our military that are serving even today. We pray that you would bless them and and watch over them and their families wherever they're serving. God, we thank you that 
though we have turned away from you as a nation in so many ways, you have not removed your hand of blessing. And the fullness of your wrath has been held back. And we pray for this nation. We pray for the people that serve it in our military. And we pray that your spirit would move across this land, bringing a spiritual awakening and revival that would cause many, many, many more to enter into your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name.